This is the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought that I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it. On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because it, I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to name, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. Thank you, team. Uh, morning, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name is Matt Full. I'm the vicar here. And um, we turn back to Ruth. And um, if you've uh, not been with us for the last three weeks, 
Well, it's a very carefully constructed narrative, so I'm going to do my best for you. But if you've missed the last three weeks, um, let's see if we can catch up as quickly as we can. Uh, I don't know if you remember last year, um, filling in the census, if you were based in the country, uh, we do it every 10 years. And uh, one article uh, made me smile in the um, in the newspaper uh, was this one, James Marriott, who's, uh, I think, a terrific, I mean, he's one of these slightly annoying characters who in his 20s, he's quite brilliant. But... Um, uh, the census reminds us we're nothing special. However unique we feel, most of us are an unremarkable product of a particular moment in history. Oh, you won't be able to read. Let me read you a little bit of what he said at the time. Filling out the census this week, I was confronted by the dispiriting realization that my life, which from the inside has always struck me as fascinating, original, and thrilling, makes a very boring set of data points. I doubt that Professor Sir Ian Diamond, the national statistician, will experience feelings of titillation or even curiosity as another white, heterosexual, universally educated, gamefully employed, 28-year-old man called James slides across his his desk. What? I imagine him muttering jokedly, or sorry, jadedly to his secretary. Another one? How many Jameses aged 28 are there in the country, for goodness sake? I'll just stick it in the shredder. And he goes on to make the obvious, when you think about it, point that um, we all think we're special and unique, but we are products of a particular moment in time, of a particular country, of a particular culture, of economic factors, global factors that make us who we are, what we fear, what we love. We're shaped by the economy more than our own brilliance and uniqueness. And so we can easily look back across the decades and say, 60, 70 years ago, <laughs> look at all those silly men walking to work in the city of London. They all look the same. They all dress the same in their silly bowler hats. How, what a bunch of lemmings they are, unlike us today, who are unique, wandering into the city in our tireless, open shirts. I mean, it's all, everyone just looks the same still. But we look back and say, oh, back then, they all conformed. Now, we're all wonderfully unique. And he says, it's ridiculous. Of course, it's silliness. And 50 years' time from now, people will look back at Instagram and say, what was that thing? Insta, Insta, Instagram, was it? No, it's the same thing. Okay. And uh, look at them all. All their photographs. They're all the same. Look at the sunsets. You know, <laughs> look at the way they hold their mouths. What's, what was the problem with them back in the 2020s? Why do they all pout in that odd fashion? And that's his point. No, the census, he makes the sensible point, really. It reminds us we're nothing special. And Sir Ian Diamond, the national statistician, it's a good title, isn't it? Um, He doesn't care about you and me as individuals. He's concerned with the big picture, how individuals, not individuals, but how people, groups and movements and trends. And I say that because it's a wonder when you come to the scriptures and the God of the Bible and realize, yeah, he's in control of the big picture and the movement of nations and their rising and their falling. And he cares deeply about every individual. He has the capacity for both. 
And uh, one thing I read a little while ago, but it seemed particularly pertinent working with uh, Rome, um, Ruth chapter 4. And I've scribbled it down at the bottom. It's such a nice quote. I thought I'd share it with you and even print it for you. And in one sense, summarizes what Ruth 4 is going to teach us. God's providential purposes, that is his ordering of the world to a certain purpose. His providential purposes include me, but they don't center on me. As though what he's doing in me could be isolated from everything else he's doing. It's a helpful truth. God's plans for the whole of the universe, they involve you. They don't center on you. But he does care deeply for you. So as I say, we come to uh, Ruth chapter 4, our last look at this very lovely, uh, very carefully constructed narrative. There are lots of ends to uh, tie up. Um, if you have been here or not, uh, chapter 1 then. Naomi and her family, Naomi married to uh, Elimelech, uh, their two boys, they foolishly, they left the promised land, they left Bethlehem. That's where it's not just a place geographically on a map, it's God's blessing is in Bethlehem. So they foolishly, rebelliously, stupidly left and went to Moab, a place of curse, a place of death. They were rejecting God in doing so. And everything went wrong for them in the land of Moab. Naomi lost her husband, lost her two sons. And so at the end of chapter 1, she eventually returns to Bethlehem and says, with great bitterness, I went away full. God has brought me back empty. God has dealt harshly with me. But chapter 2, she has come back with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, the only one who's come back with her. Um, and in chapter 2, they've got to uh, essentially glean, beg. They're penniless, friendless, homeless. They've got nothing. The, the, the land that Naomi owned has been sold, and she has no claim on it now because only the men in the family have a, 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 a claim to the title. So they beg, but they beg in God's good kindness by his providence in the land of Boaz, who happens to be a different relative, and Boaz is a distant relative. Boaz is kind to them. Boaz feeds them. Uh, Boaz and Ruth, there's a little something there. Uh, and we saw last time in chapter 3, Ruth asks Boaz, this distant relative, if he will marry her, care for her, redeem the land that belongs to the family. And at some point, that's been sold off. And he says, I'll try, because there's someone else who has a better claim than me. Let's, I'll try. But either way, Ruth, I'll make sure that you and your mother-in-law, Naomi, get the land back. I might be able to sort it out. It may be someone else, but trust me. So it ended on that sort of cliffhanger. Can Boaz redeem the land? And the point in this again is that Ruth and Naomi, they're nothing special in God's plan, and yet they're deeply precious to him. And actually, he uses them greatly. We'll work through it. Look at the two women uh, and then what's going on in the background. So three little things we'll say. Ruth is redeemed at cost of Boaz. Her mother-in-law Naomi is restored by the love of Ruth. And then lastly, we'll pull it together. The Lord had a greater plan in all this. So first, verses 1 to 12, Ruth is redeemed at cost to Boaz. So Boaz has promised to sort things out, and he cracks on with it. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he mentioned came along. Wouldn't you 
know it. Why has he gone to the city gates? That's where legal decisions are made in the culture of the time. Lo and behold, the very man he needs to see happens to walk by because the Lord is arranging things again. He gets no name. We'll call him Mr. So-and-so because he's got no name. He's unimportant relatively to the story. So Boaz, verse 2, calls over, uh, calls the guy over, calls over 10 elders of the town to make sure it's legally official, sit down here. Then he says to Mr. So-and-so, uh, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, verse 3, is uh, selling the piece of land. Pause. Uh, I don't want to perform smoke and mirrors in front of you, but this, by the nature of the Hebrew text, you can do it as a past tense or a present tense. It doesn't, tenses don't quite work the same. It makes much more sense logically to my mind that it's sold. Because if she was selling it, they wouldn't have been penniless in chapter 2 and had to glean. So ask me afterwards if you want. But I think sold makes more sense of the, uh, of the story. Anyway, um, uh, Naomi's land has been sold. It belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought, Mr. So-and-so, I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest you buy it in the presence of those seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, do so. If you'll not, tell me. And, uh, oh, no, for um, no one has the right to do except you, and I'm next in line. I'll do it, he says, verse 4. There's clearly some sort of good deal on offer here. I mean, it's very succinct. We know nothing about Mr. So-and-so. He punches out his words, even fewer words, in the text, of the Hebrew text. I'll do it, he says. No deliberation. No, let me go and look at the land. I mean, it's a small village, right? People obviously know what this land is, and it's a good deal. And okay. I'll do it, he says. Wow. Um, Boaz is not finished, verse 5. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, the elderly widow, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, young woman in her 20s in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, well, I can't redeem it because I endanger my own estate. You redeem it. I can't. Now, what's going on here? <laughs> Seems to be the case. Um, if Mr. So-and-so redeems the land and takes on Naomi, that's a good deal for him. He's just taking on the land. Great. I've got a bit of property. And this elderly woman, fine. She's beyond childbearing age. We've been told that in chapter one. So she'll die. The land is mine. Ah, there's a young woman, Ruth, in her 20s. If you buy the land, I mean, look, culturally, I know we don't like these things. I'm just explaining it to you, right? Culturally, if you take on the land, you're required to marry her as well. You'll have to fulfill your husbandly duties to her. There's a chance she'll have a kid, Right? At that point, the kid owns the land, not you. And then you've got this child. and So let me try and contemporize it. Here's, here's a good deal. Here's a plot of land. It's worth 10 million quid, but you can get it for two. Great. I'll buy two million quid. Brilliant. Absolutely. The only problem is, in a year's time, it reverts back to the original owner. What? Two million quid, and I've just got to give it back after a year before I've even sort of um, farmed it at all. Yeah, not a good deal. Um, that's what's going on here. Right? That's the plot, as it were. So um, the man says, well, stuff that for a game of soldiers. You can have it, mate. 
um, because uh, it'll, I'll bankrupt my estate. It'll cause all sorts of chaos in my family and uh, blow it. I'm not spending two million quid on a piece of land that's going to just be taken away from me in a year's time. You can do that, Boaz. That's you, if you want to be stupid enough to do that sort of thing, that's up to you. I ain't doing it. Now, so what happens? Verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, you have this uh, sort of liturgical thing. You, you took off your shoe, uh, gave it to the other person, uh, and that's just a, a sort of physical demonstration. Okay, I've handed it over to you. So verse 8, the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Boaz stresses the witnesses, verse 9. Today you are witnesses. I've bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and the two sons, Kilian, Malon. I've also acquired, I know we don't like it, it's just the culture of the time, Ruth the Moabite as my wife. And here's what's going on. In order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from hometown. You're my witnesses. Again, witnesses. So look, it's not very romantic, is it? Is it? I'm marrying you, Ruth. Oh, in order that the name of your ex-husband doesn't die out and you know, the, the family line continues. Oh, I love it when you speak those sweet nothings to me. Um, but he's a dutiful guy, Boaz. He's doing the right thing. Pause. <laughs> Let's try to draw some thoughts here. Why is this in the Bible? I mean, a handful of people here are lawyers, one or two property lawyers. You might find the whole transaction being stimulating. Good for you. For most of us, it's like, um, you could happily have gone, if it was just a romance, from chapter 2, verse 11. Boaz and Ruth meet. There's a little something there. You could jump straight on to chapter 4, verse 13. They marry, they have a child. Ta-da, that's a rom-com. Um, that'll work. That will be fine. But chapter 3, will they get together? Won't they get together? Chapter 4, this tension What's going to happen to the land? Is the plot going to get ruined? Is, are all of the hopes and dreams going to fall apart? Why do we get this story? It seems to me two reasons um, would make sense of it. One, life is just messy and doesn't run very smoothly. And the scriptures know that. And the Lord knows that. And there's plenty of narratives recorded which are chaos because life is like that. Sometimes it doesn't run very smoothly. There are months when it's bewildering. There are years when life seems to be going nowhere. Yeah, 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 <laughs> says the book of Ruth. Yeah, we know that. Um, we're not going to just make it. And then this happened and this worked. And long time, uncertainty. Life is messy and the book of Ruth reminds us of that. The other point I think here in chapter 4 is that this is a costly redemption for Boaz. Mr. So-and-so is unwilling to bear the cost of buying this land back. He's like, whoa, 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 I'm not doing that. That is a reckless expense. Uh, I, I perhaps should do the right thing. I'm a relative. I should buy back the land for, for, for Naomi. But uh, to be honest, it's costing too much money. Boaz says, I'll pay the money. The stress of one stress here in chapter four is it's costly what Boaz does. It's not easy. There's a bit of risk to it. And as we daydream forward and 
and the New Testament takes up this language of being a redeemer and fills it out much more richly in the work of the Lord Jesus. There's something here, if you're a Christian or not, but certainly if you're a Christian to remind you this language of redemption, Jesus is a redeemer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. He's redeemed me. Uh, yeah, I know, I've known that for 25 years, 55 years, whatever it may be. And Ruth Ford says, yeah, but you do remember, don't you? Redemption's costly. And sometimes you do need to slow down and remember that. That, I've known the language of 1 Peter 1, it was not with silver and gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Jesus. It, it's a costly thing for him to redeem you. And if you stumble through the details of Ruth 4 to work out why it, it partly just to slow you down and remind you of that, that redemption is costly. It certainly is when you look in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a costly thing for Jesus to redeem. That's Ruth. Ruth is redeemed at a cost to Boaz uh, in verses 1 to 12. Then we jump on. Uh, about nine months, clearly. So uh, verses 13 to 17, Naomi is restored by the love of Ruth. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Well, um, we've left the men then at the gates discussing law and we're about to enter in this sort of family scenario. Although the bulk of this little section is the women commenting upon Naomi and what's happened. Because after verse 13, Boaz and Ruth, they've gone. They've, they've left the stage. And the rest of chapter 4 is, we're back to Naomi. We've sort of turned full circle from chapter 1, and, and the focus is on Naomi here. Verse 13, there's a son, a grandson for Naomi. Ten years in Moab, Ruth couldn't have any kids with her husband here, that the Lord has explicitly the author of life. And the women then, they function as a chorus. They're sort of, actually the way you might get in an opera, they're commenting. They're the sort of narrator. What's happened here? The women in verse 14. The women said to Naomi, you can imagine a sort of operatic chorus uh, sort of bursting into song, praise be to the Lord, verse 14, who has this day not left you without a guardian redeemer. I think now talking about the child the grandson, Obed, because he is the one who grows up and owns the land, therefore can provide financially for Naomi in her old age, I think, at that point. Someone to look after you. He's not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he, Obed, become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life. It's a lovely expression. It's Psalm 23 language, precisely the same. Uh, the Lord will restore your soul. He'll renew your life. He'll sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who's better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed, who's the father of Jesse, the father of David. The women are making the point here, yeah, Naomi, you went away. You rejected the Lord. You came back and you said, he's given me nothing. He's taken away everything. I went away full. I've come back empty. Look at your arms now, Naomi. 
your, your arms are full once again. Slowly throughout the book of Ruth, Naomi has been filled up again. At the end of chapter one, she's empty. At the end of chapter two, she's full of grain. Boaz keeps on giving her and keeps on giving her. Now at the end of chapter four, she has an heir, a son. Verse 16, the child, not used since chapter one. Let me just, here's what would be silly to learn from this. They'd be saying positively. I don't think we want to learn from this. Uh, how do you put it? When Naomi lost everything in chapter one, by the end of the story, she's got everything back again. So all is good. All works out fine. Um, that would be a very trite reading of the book because it ignores the years of pain and loss. It ignores death of a husband death of firstborn son, death of secondborn son, misery, pain. And I think we just need to wrap it. No, nothing in this world, in this world, erases the pain of loss completely. So let's not be trite in how we read the book of Ruth. Well, you can recover, but it's only in the next that fully you say, God has done all things well. Some dear friends, they, they lost their teenage son. They would say, we miss him every day. We can still be happy, of course. Life goes on and we can be happy and rejoice in lots of things. But we miss him every day, right? That pain never goes, this side of heaven. So let's not be trite with the book of Ruth. But here's, what I think, what we can learn on this point. You can praise God even in the darkest of nights. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He restores your soul, even here and now. And when we stand before him, we, like the women commenting on Naomi here, will say, Lord, you are no man's debtor. You have hyperabundantly restored, now in glory, everything I felt as a loss. The pain of life on earth has been completely swept away by the joys of what I now know. Naomi's restored by the love of Ruth. Just that last little sentence, but by, by, well, half of it, by the love of Ruth. Yeah, this strikes me. I don't even take it or leave it at this point. But how would all this restoration come to Naomi? It's the Lord's work. But all the blessings had come through Ruth. She's the channel. I think that's the point in, in um, chapter 4, verse 15. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given you birth. The only time the verb love is used in the book of Ruth is here. The love of Ruth for Naomi, that is the vehicle for all of God's blessings to be restored to her. Love, loyalty, cost, sacrifice. Why is this book called Ruth? I mean, it starts and ends with Naomi. It's her narrative. The hero is Boaz. I mean, call it Boaz. Call it, call it Naomi. Why is it called Ruth? Because through Ruth, everything is restored back to Naomi. The love of Ruth is the source of all God's blessings for her. And there's just something that you and I are not the center of God's plans, but he uses us to achieve his purposes.
Ruth is restored at cost of Boaz. Naomi is restored by the love of Ruth last. The Lord had a greater plan in this. So verse 17, the women say, um, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. The narrator's focus is clearly not on particularly Obed. The narrator, verses 18 to the end, he's done with Naomi and Boaz and Ruth. That story, he's, he's finished with it. The point the narrator wants to make comes at the end. Verse 22, Obed, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the father of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. The dominant figure of the Old Testament, King David, who from whom the line descends to Jesus. That's who the narrator is concerned with. So the book of Ruth, it began in chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled the nadir of Israel's history. There was no king and everyone did as they saw fit. And it was wicked. It's the, the, the low points of Israel's history. And then at the end, well, David is coming. This greatest king of Israel, whose descendant will be King Jesus, he's coming. So our, our focus in reading the book of Ruth has been on the, uh, the, the lives of a handful of individuals. But the Lord is arranging things so that his king, David, would come and lead to another king, Jesus, who would save the world. And there's something, I think, to you, for you and me in our, in our thinking that's a little, bit, um, it's a little bit crazy, really. All right, so um, Naomi had to go to Moab to meet Ruth. And then they had to come back to Bethlehem. But they had to come back penniless so that Ruth was gleaning in someone's fields. And it was Boaz's fields, in order that Boaz and Ruth would meet and their descendants would produce David and their descendants would produce Jesus. So in order to have Jesus in the, the way that it's come to us and he's come to us, they had to go to Moab and they had to be penniless. And wow, there's a lot of details there that needed to be written in advance for the plan of salvation to happen. And so perhaps sometimes for you and me, we, we would all benefit from what one writer calls an unmessianic sense of non-destiny. You and I are not the center of the world. We are not the Messiah. Our destiny is not to be great. We need an unmessianic sense of non-destiny. Jesus is the king. And yet the details of our lives do contribute to God working out his purposes in this world. Life is better when we focus on him more and on us less. The census would remind us you and I are nothing special. We're just data points in the scheme of, whatever, 65 million uh, people in the UK. But the Bible would put it differently. You and I are not the center of the universe, and you and I are not the center of God's plans, but we are in them. And he does all things well in the lives of those who love him. And he cares for us deeply, even if we're not the center of his plans. The thing I enjoy about reading Ruth is um, Naomi. She never met David. 
obviously you've been long dead before David was born. Ruth might have just met David, but certainly when he was a child and would have died before he became king, entered into his greatness. Um, so can you imagine, uh, eventually, you, you, if you're a Christian, you, 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 you're in glory, and uh, you meet a lot of people, a lot of people there, and uh, eventually one day um, you meet a woman, and she's called Ruth, and she seems to have like ancient garments on and I don't know what you know um and you just get chatting and there's just something she says and you say hold on a minute hold on a minute are you like the Ruth like the Bible Ruth and she says well you know, uh, look don't don't be impressed with me I was just stumbling through life right I just stumbled into a marriage, and then he died, and then I stumbled back with mother-in-law. And I, I mean, it doesn't record the rows we had at home over washing, does it? But all of that, don't you know? All those things went on, and we stumbled through. And uh, yeah, I met this guy Boaz, and he was great, and we married. But I had no idea that a king would come from our heritage. Like my grandson would be like King David. I had no idea, and that the Messiah Jesus would come through my lineage. I had no idea. I was just stumbling through life. And just work with me, okay? Uh, you're in this conversation. At this moment, Jesus walks by um, and says, yeah, but Ruth, you were faithful. That's what I needed you to be. And you were faithful. That's all I ask. I ask you to be great. not asking you to dream dreams that are, are wonderful. Ruth, you were faithful. You were loyal to your mother-in-law. You were kind to her. Oh, I can work wonders through that. How much takes place in your life and mine, and we have absolutely no idea what's going on? We're completely bewildered. Why on earth have I been doing this for three years? And then it just, that was a complete waste of three years of my time and energy. I, poured, I tried to start a business. I tried to move to this country. I tried to be a missionary in this part of the world, and it just nothing but chaos. It all was useless. What a waste of time. But we, we don't know. And we, we're just stumbling through, Lord. We're just stumbling through. What on earth are you doing in my life? Well, you may have to wait till glory to find the answer to that. But Jesus would still say to you, but be faithful. Be kind. <laughs> Be loyal to me. Serve me wholeheartedly. Through that, well, the fruit of faithfulness, that can last into eternity. Look, God's plan for the world, it doesn't center on me or you, but it does include you. And a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're just stumbling through sometimes. But who knows what God can achieve through even the periods of our life which we think are a waste of time. We just don't know. But his purpose is good. He is kind to his people. You may feel at times empty. He'll restore your soul. And you will know, even if in glory you wait, that you're full because of his kindness. Let's pray together. Great God and Father, we thank you for this rich story.
It's a much-loved story in the Scriptures, and for good reason. We, we see fallible characters, none of them wicked, all of them trying their best, but making mistakes, doing stupid things, fallible. Uh, but we see good characters, kind characters, particularly in Ruth and Boaz. But, Father, we get to the end and realize, well, we're, we can tend to focus upon the individuals, and particularly us, through your people, you are, have a greater plan. You're achieving greater things. It's not that you're indifferent to the individual. You care passionately. But Father, would we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the center of the universe, serve him, be loyal to him, and in looking to him and not obsessing so much about our own lives and greatness, would we there have a loyalty, a faithfulness, that endures into eternity, we ask in his name. Amen.